morning. My name is Josh. I'm one of the pastors here at the village. And it's good to be with you all this morning as we're continuing through the book of Nehemiah. At the close of chapter 3, we saw this picture of God's people working side by side across class, across status, laboring together for the sake of the rebuilding of the wall. And this, this was a high point. But, but right here at the outset of chapter 4, we see that that success brought external conflict. See, as we build for the kingdom, we will experience resistance. We know that ultimately our opposition is not what the Bible calls flesh and blood. Our opposition is ultimately, is our, our opposition is not ultimately people, it's spiritual. But that opposition can manifest itself in different ways. And in order to really understand how Nehemiah addresses this opposition, you have to understand and hold on to one of the fundamental themes that runs right through the center of the narrative. Yes, Nehemiah is a great leader, and yes, the Jewish people had a mind to work, but this story is ultimately about God. This is a story about God's covenant faithfulness to his people, that he, covenant faithfulness to his promise that he made to his covenant people. The promise being to restore them and their place of worship. So all through the book of Nehemiah, we're seeing God act through his people to accomplish his will. We're seeing God superintending the construction of a wall. My dad had this old 1987 GMC Caballero. And, and if you don't know what that is, just, just think in your mind and picture an El Camino. It's a hybrid between a, a compact car and a truck. And it was the ugliest thing I've ever seen. But I loved it. And, and he loved it. And so he would take me for drives in it, and we would just find this empty parking lot, and he'd park the car, and he'd look to me and say, hey, you want to drive? And so what seven-year-old is going to say no, right? So of course I wanted to drive. He'd take me, he'd put me on his lap, and I would grab the steering wheel. And I would turn the wheel, and I could feel the car change directions. I felt like, felt like I was the man. Until I realized that while I had my hands on the top of the wheel, my dad had his hands on the bottom, right? So when I would turn the wheel to the right, it was actually my dad turning the car to the right. And when I would turn the wheel to the left, it was my dad turning the car to the left. And when I would hold the car, the, the steering wheel straight, it was my dad that was holding the wheel steady. Now, anybody watching us would see an eight-year-old steering a car. But in reality, it was my dad that was in control. See, in the book of Nehemiah, we see sound military strategy. We see leadership. We see Nehemiah's hands on the wheel. But when we, see, when we look closer, we see that God's actually the one that's in control. Nehemiah knows this, and we're going to see how he deals with opposition in light of it. So let's look again together at verses 1 through 3 in chapter 4. Now, when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall... He was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burn ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him, and he said, yes, what they are building, if a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. And here we see the return of a couple men that made their first appearances in chapter 2, Sanballat and Tobiah. 
In chapter 2, when Nehemiah was inspecting the walls, both Sanballat and Tobiah were there taunting the idea as a pipe dream. And in the beginning of chapter 4, we see that they're right back at it. And what prompted this mockery was him hearing that work was actually getting done. Sanballat jeers at the workers on the wall and then goes back to his folks and continues to talk trash. Look at what he says. He calls them feeble Jews. He casts doubt on the success of their work. He points out them massive work ahead of them. He makes their work out to be impossible. And Tobiah just co-signs the everything with, everything with a joke about a fox on a wall. He's taking a shot at the quality of the work to this point. And we'll see in verse 5 that all of this is intentionally being said within the earshot of the builders. So the first form of external conflict we see here is not political. It's not even physical at this point. The first bit of external conflict we see is ridicule. Verbal attacks with the aim of stirring up discouragement because if they can demoralize the workforce, they can stop the work. So they just layer on insult after insult, mockery after mockery. It's like scrolling through a Twitter feed. Christians being mocked and slandered and misrepresented. Entire social media accounts dedicated to making us and what we believe look stupid. Christians are the ones being vilified. News articles being written about how America is becoming more godless and how that's actually a good thing. Then there's the personal ridicule we might encounter from our family or neighbors for being counted as a follower of Christ. Today, we're the bigots, we're the oppressors, we're the problem. In every age, God's people have been maligned. It's inevitable. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. Because anyone who desires to live a godly life will suffer persecution. And the collective effect of hearing these things and the constant social pressure on what we believe can make us start to wonder whether or not we're actually on the right side of things. Is this all even worth it? The effect these things can have now was the same effect, uh, same intended effect that it had back then. If they can demoralize the workforce, they will stop the work. And hearing all of these things can get tiring and angering and frustrating because it stings. And I think we see the same emotional response in Nehemiah. In verse 4, after revisiting the insults and with zero transition at all, he just reacts in a natural reaction of prayer. Let's read what he says in verses 4 and 5. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight. For they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. He says, hear, O our God, for we are despised. This is like a collective prayer from God's people calling out to a God to see, to calling him to see what's actually taking place. And then Nehemiah just starts to go in, invoking covenantal curses on his enemies, asking God not to forgive their guilt. This kind of prayer has a name. It's called imprecatory prayer. It's not an isolated thing. These are prayers that ask God to bring down judgment and destruction upon our enemies. And we see it a lot in the Psalms. I'll give you some examples. Psalm 109, 9 through 10. May his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. 
May his children wander about and beg, seeking food far from the ruins they inhabit. Or Psalm 59, 13, consume them in wrath, consume them till they are no more, that they may know that God rules over Jacob to the ends of the earth. Or my personal favorite, Psalm 69, verses 22 through 23. Let their own table before them become a snare. And when they, are, when they are at peace, let it become a trap. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and make their loins tremble continuously. So the, the question is, how do these prayers reconcile with the commands elsewhere in Scripture calling us to love our enemies? Luke chapter 6, verses 27 through 28. Jesus says, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, and pray for those who abuse you. So before our next prayer gathering, I need to know whether or not I should be praying that God will make the loins of my enemies tremble. And I think the weight of the biblical command calling us to bless and not curse our enemies leads us to a first and primary response of a prayer for their salvation. We should be praying that God would draw them to himself. But if we believe that all scripture is God-breathed and profitable, that means that this also is God-breathed and is benefit and is beneficent. Beneficent? Okay. I'm looking. I'm, I'm nodding. I'm, okay. Yeah, I'm good. Okay, cool. I'm not just making up words. I promise. Um, it's beneficial for us. These harsh words here are, are put here for our benefit. And so what can we take from them? There are times when we see something happening around us that, that just looks and feels so wrong or so evil that our hearts ache for God to intervene. And I think the imprecatory prayers and psalms give us an outlet to channel that righteous indignation that we feel when we see something going wrong. But there's something else here that I think is instructive for us. Look at how Nehemiah starts and finishes the, finishes the prayer. He starts with, we are despised, and then finishes with, they have provoked you to anger. Nehemiah saw the insults directed at God and his people, and by extension, he saw those insults directed at God himself. God stands in solidarity with his people, especially in times of persecution. And we saw this in Jesus with Paul or Saul on the road to Damascus in Acts 9-4. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul hadn't laid a finger on Jesus, but he was laying hands on his people. Jesus is showing that attacks on God's people are attacks on God. And in light of that, Nehemiah didn't bear the burden of the attacks on himself. He brought them to God. So underneath this imprecatory prayer is Nehemiah entrusting the vindication of God's people and God's work to God. Nehemiah isn't going on attack against the mockers. He isn't personally retaliating. He's leaving them to God to be dealt with. And this helps us in the face of ridicule and mockery. I think we do what Nehemiah does. And in those moments when the opposition stings and they slander, you say, hear us, O God, for we are despised. And because he identifies with us, we can leave our vindication to the judge of all the earth and trust that he will do right. This removes the fear of ridicule because we serve a God that will vindicate his people. He will clear our names and he will remove our scorn. We have a refuge in him. Listen to what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2. 
For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if you do good and suffer for it and you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. We have a place where we can unload our offenses. And the effect of this is found in verse 6. Let's read it. So we built the wall, and all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. And I love the simplicity of this statement. Nehemiah entrusts his vindication to God, and the text shows us that when he's done, he gets back to work. It says, so we built the wall. The people were mocked and ridiculed. They brought it to God, and they still had a mind to work, showing that they were unaffected by the slander. Sambalat hears that the insults aren't stopping the work until he responds, verses 7 through 9. But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. Word has gotten out that God's people are still working on the wall, and they're still building the wall. And again, it makes God's people's enemies angry. But this time, there are more people involved. The Ashdodites, the Ammonites, and the Arab have all been added to the, the, the Samaritans mentioned in verse 1. And so here, we're seeing a diversity of forces that are coming against God's people. Laying all this out on a map, you would see that God's people are literally surrounded by their enemies. But these enemies are not the only external forces that are working against them. Let's read it, verses 12, 10 through 12. In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to re rebuild the wall. And our enemies said, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them to stop the work. At that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us ten times, you must return to us. They're at the halfway point of the building of the wall. And the, the people of Judah that are building are starting to get tired. The size of the work was not only wearing the people down, but it was making them doubt whether or not they'll actually be able to finish it. There was so much debris around the wall that it was making it almost impossible to carry loads to and from the build site. Here, the external force that's impacting the work is the size and nature of the work itself. And the quote in verse 10 is actually indicated as being a song that the people were singing. One commentator calls it a gloomy ditty. And this is, this is opposite of what we're trained to expect here. The people aren't forest animals singing whistle while you work while they build the wall. Nor are they British kids cleaning their rooms while Mary Poppins sings about a spoonful of sugar helping the medicine go down. Nor are they dwarf miners singing hi-ho as they're digging up jewels. I can keep going, 
with a bunch of movie work montages, but you get the picture. We're trained to see this work as this idealistic, romanticized, easy thing, but this grounds us in the reality that kingdom work is still work. The people are laboring. The work is brutal. They're tired. And we see that in the people of Judah. The size of the work itself was causing problems. And not only that, their enemies are planning a surprise attack. There are now reports coming from the outside of Jerusalem warning those that are on the wall that an attack was imminent. So there's discouragement. They're discouraged, there's fatigue, there's doubt because the work is hard. And all of that is being compounded by the imminent threat of attack. And we might know a little bit of what this, this feels like, this, this feeling, this pressure from all sides. We see threats coming from legislation. We see threats coming from cultural stigmas and societal pressures. We see threats coming from secular ideologies. Add to that, there are these times of exhaustion or doubt with whether we want to continue the work at all. So the question is, how do you encourage this group of embattled workers to persevere when there is so much working against them? What encourages us to, per, per, to persevere when we experience resistance in the path of our obedience? And I think we have a couple clues found in verses 13 through 14. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, in open places, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. See, after arming the people against attack and organizing them on the wall, Nehemiah encourages them with three things. He says, don't be afraid. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight. See, the, uh, the temptation when things oppose us in our faith is to focus on the opposition. When we focus on the difficulty of the struggle, we are prone to fear. So the exhortation from Nehemiah is to first lift the eyes of the people off of the things that are opposing them. He says, do not be afraid of them. And then he directs their attention to the God that stands behind them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. Those things that oppose us or threaten us are minuscule in comparison to him. He's urging them to remember not just the God that they serve, but what that God is capable of. This is what Paul calls the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe. He is great and awesome. And grasping that reality gives us reason for not being overly concerned with the things that stand against us. Because when you're engaged in God's work, you're on the side of God himself. Nehemiah didn't stop there, though. After reminding them of the God that stands behind them, he directs their attention to the people standing beside them. Remember, the people are organized by clans. Clans are families. Families are being grouped together. So when Nehemiah tells them to fight for their brothers and their sons and their daughters and their wives, those brothers and sons and daughters and wives are close by. He's reminding them of the stakes and puts them in a situation where they can see with their eyes those who they're fighting for. 
Because sometimes we can get so wrapped up in the opposition we face, we lose sight of what we're actually working for. He gave the reason to persevere a face with the goal of energizing them for the fight. Can I be honest for a second? Some Sunday mornings I wake up and I don't want to do kids ministry, which is a problem because I'm responsible for kids ministry. Some Sundays I wake up and after a hard week, I'm tired. I'm, I'm discouraged. I feel pressed down. And I get here. And I talk to the volunteers and I see the parents. I hear the kids laugh and sing. And we rehearse the catechism. And I hear five-year-olds tell me that the way to glorify God is by obeying his commands in law. And, and in that moment, God lovingly and faithfully says, this is what we're working for. This is what we're striving for. This is what we're pressing for. These are the souls that we are contending for. This is why we do this. I wonder how much of our zeal to pursue holiness or to evangelize or to serve, I wonder how much of our zeal to advance God's kingdom is lost because we only focus on the risk and we only focus on the doubts and we only focus on the anxieties that might come with it. This is what keeps your feet in the fight. What if we reversed all that? And in the moments when everything feels like a struggle, instead of focusing on the things and the urges working against us, we focus on the things working for us and the people we're working for. Let me say it another way. What if we focus less on the reasons we shouldn't do something and focus more on the reasons we should? This helps us work and strive for the kingdom when everything else feels like it's being resisted. So let's get back to the text. The results of all this are captured neatly in verse 15. When our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. Now, now pay attention to how Nehemiah describes the outcome of the enemy's plans. He says that they found out what was going on and that God had frustrated their plan. Nehemiah prayed and set a guard by arming and stationing the people at the lowest parts of the wall. Then he exhorted them to not be afraid, to remember God, and to fight. But he attributes the result of all of this to God. Nehemiah's hands were on the wheel, but it was God that was steering the car. This reminds us that the active ingredient in the defense of Jerusalem wasn't strategic brilliance. It was the protection of a loving and faithful God, God's power working through God's people. Now, we tend to have this idea in our, in our heads of how we think God answers prayers. We have no issues attributing the impossible or even the unlikely to God. But the practical, not so much. We create this distinction between the spiritual and the practical. If something's practical, it's not spiritual. And if it's spiritual, it can't be practical. And the passage that has always blown this up for me is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 56. Paul says, For even when we came to Macedonia, our bodies had no rest. 
but we are afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. Do you see what Paul just did? He said that the way that God supernaturally provided comfort was very, by, very practically sending Titus. And seeing that God needed comfort, God in heaven could have just been like, booyah, be comforted. But that's not what he did, and that's not what Paul saw. He saw the coming of Titus as the comfort coming from God. God's comfort came in a very normal way, and we see the same thing in Nehemiah. God could have used trumpets to cause confusion and let the enemies wipe themselves, wipe themselves out like he's done. Or he could have sent an angel to do the dirty work for them like he's done. But he didn't. Instead, he had Nehemiah set a guard. And it was through that setting of the guard that God protected his people. God's sovereignty worked through human actions. And this theme of both human action and God's sovereignty ties us right back into the through line for the entire book of Nehemiah. Behind it all is a faithful God who keeps his promises and channels his will through his people to complete his purposes. So behind the strategy and behind the exhortation is a God that strengthens his people to persevere in the midst of opposition. And we see this again in the final movement of the chapter in verse 16 to the beginning of verse 18. From that day on, half of my servants worked on the construction and half, led, and half held the spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah who were building the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the, on the work with one hand and held the, his weapon with the other. And each of the builders had his sword strapped at his side while he, while he built. Now it says that the, the plans for the surprise attack were foiled, but it doesn't say the enemies were disbanded. So in light of the fact that they were still surrounded by their, their enemies, some ongoing protections needed to be established. That's why Nehemiah says in verse 16, from that day on. Things have shifted from a temporary measure to an ongoing way of life. And the people are not only a workforce, but now they're a standing army as well. An army with two distinct qualities. The first of those being vigilance. The work continued, but the people carried burdens with one hand and carried a sword with the other. The work continued, but the people who were building had a sword strapped to their side. In verses 22 and 23, we see that Nehemiah stopped people from even leaving the city at night so that they can set a guard and watch during the night, and that Nehemiah and his servants refused to take off their clothes so that they were always ready for battle. There is this element of readiness and vigilance. The immediate threat was gone, but the wartime mentality has never left. This, this is not home. This is not home for us, even though sometimes it might feel like it. As a Christian, we are always in a fight. We are always struggling. We just might not always realize it. The world is not where we belong, and there will always be something working against us. So there's a need for vigilance. That's the first quality of the workforce. We see the second as we close out the chapter, starting in verse 18 again. And each of the builders had his sword strapped at his side while he built. The man who sounded the trumpet was beside me. And I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, the work is great and widely spread, and we are separated on the wall far from one another. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. 
our God will fight for us. So he labored at the work, and half of them held spears from the break of dawn until the, until the stars came out. I also said to the people at that time, let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem, that they may be guard for us by night and my labor by day. So neither I, nor my brothers, nor my servants, nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes. Each kept his weapon at his right hand. And in light of the present threat surrounding them, Nehemiah sees an issue. He says, the work is great and widely spread. We are separated on the wall far from one another. The problem with the people being so spread out is that it makes them vulnerable to attack. So Nehemiah comes up with another plan. In the, in, in the event of attack, a trumpet would sound and everyone would rally to the sound of the trumpet to fight. See, Nehemiah saw inherent weakness in separation. And he solved the problem by giving the people a place to rally in the time of need. So in about 30 minutes or so, you'll leave here. Head back home, head back to school, head back to work. And it's in those times where the feeling of distance can start to creep in. That feeling of isolation can start to creep in. It's that feeling of being separated from your brothers and sisters that can start to creep in. And I think if we're honest, that's where we feel the most vulnerable for attack. Vulnerable to sin, vulnerable to discouragement, vulnerable to anxiety, vulnerable. And the text in, in Nehemiah gives us a strategy for that. When you find yourself isolated and under attack, sound the trumpet. We can't neglect community in the time of trouble. The people on the wall weren't going to fight alone. They weren't going to strive alone. Their collective strength was greater than their individual parts. They recognized that the only way forward was to go forward together. God never meant it to be just you. So when you're in trouble, you blow the trumpet. You connect with God's people around you. And when you hear the trumpet blown, you rally to help. And you bear the burdens. In the face of opposition, Nehemiah understood the value of community and solidarity. But his confidence was elsewhere. It's found in verse 20. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet rally to us there, our God will fight for us. Nehemiah has some great strategy. He was a great leader, but ultimately his confidence wasn't in his plan of defense. It wasn't in the collective strength of his people. It wasn't in their constant vigilance. His confidence was in the fact that God would fight for them. So they strategized and they armed themselves, but they knew that unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. Even though their hands were on the wheel, their confidence was that God was still in control and he would ensure their victory. God will fight for us, and God has fought for us. Our biggest enemies aren't angry Twitter accounts, nor are they organizations or ideologies or legislations or people. The Bible tells us that the biggest enemies we have are sin and death. Our sin brings death, and we are helpless against it. So how do we fight? Rather, who fought for us? Colossians chapter 2, verse 13 through 15. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, 
God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Our biggest opposition was dealt with at the cross. But like we saw this morning in Nehemiah, it wasn't us that was fighting. It was God that had fought for us. Jesus triumphed over our biggest enemies. He fought and won on our behalf. That's why the Bible says that we are more than conquerors. If God is for us, who can be against us? If God justifies, who can condemn? If our God is for us, who can stand against us? Our God fought for us and he will fight for us. And you can bring that confidence with you to any opposition you have in the path to your obedience. That he has fought for us and he's already won. This takes us to a good news for this morning. On the cross, Jesus fought our greatest enemy and secured our greatest victory. So whatever obstacles we might see as being in the way of our, the advancement of the kingdom, whatever resistance we might feel as we seek the kingdom, both personally and corporately, we know that when we're slandered, we have a God that vindicates us. We know that when we're pressed on all sides, we have a God that helps us persevere. And as we work, we have a God that ensures that we will not be overtaken. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I come before you, Lord, and I... I thank you. I thank you for this. I thank you that you have fought for us and you will fight for us and you have secured the victory. And I pray that it would produce two things. I pray that it would produce confidence, Lord, that we'd have confidence in the fact that we have a God that stands behind us, protecting us, leading us, that has secured our victory, Father. I pray that it would also produce zeal, Lord, that we'd be encouraged by this, that you created this boldness by this, Father, that we would know that, Lord, that it's not just some, we're not just a group of humble sinners, but we're a group of humble sinners that serve a big, great, and awesome God. So I pray that you'd help us when we're tired to persevere, that when we're struck down, that we'd know that we're not abandoned. Lord, I pray that we would carry this confidence with us the rest of the day, the rest of the week, through the rest of our lives. Sons, then we pray. Amen.